The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I am pleased to announce that we are welcoming Pure Energy Minerals back to the Ellis Martin Report. I'll speak with Patrick Highsmith, the CEO of the company, about their Clayton Valley project in Nevada and their offtake agreement for lithium oxide with Tesla Motors. Pure Energy trades as PE on the TSX Venture Exchange and PEMIF in the U.S. James McDonald, the president of Kootenay Silver, joins us, trading in the U.S. as KOOYF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as KTN. Kootenay has high grades of silver in Mexico. I'll speak with Ken Berry of Northern Vertex, trading as NHVCF in the U.S. and NEE on the TSX Venture Exchange. Their project in northwestern Arizona is slated to go into commercial production next fall with gold and silver assets. I'll visit in Vancouver with Dr. Catherine Hickson and Dejin Resources Corporation, trading as DJIFF in the U.S. and DJI on the TSX Venture Exchange. Dr. Hickson will enlighten us about Dejan's lithium plays in Nevada and Argentina. Stay with me for my explanation of why Cruise Capital Corporation believes its position to handle the growing demand for cobalt. Cruise Capital trades as BKTPF in the U.S. and CUZ on the TSX Venture Exchange. Peter Dassler, the president of Canalaska Uranium, returns to the program for an overview of his recent travels to Saskatchewan. Canalaska trades as CVVUF in the U.S. and CVV on the TSX Venture Exchange. I'll wrap the program up with yet another member of the Cobol space, this time in Ontario. Vertically integrated Cobalt Tech Mining, trading as NRT on the TSX Venture Exchange. Let's begin. Join me for a recent conversation with Peter Dassler, President and CEO of Canalaska Uranium Limited, trading in the U.S. under the symbol CVVUF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as CVV. Canalaska is an exploration company in Canada's Athabasca Basin, known for some of the highest grades of uranium in the world with 18 projects of their own, holding one of the largest land positions in the region. Comprising of up to 1,800 square miles, Canalaska shares a joint venture with the major uranium producer Cameco. Additionally, the company has staked approximately 75 diamond targets in the Athabasca, bringing in De Beers, the world's largest diamond producer, as a partner. Peter, welcome back to the program. Uh, it's good to be back, Alice. A uh, lot's happened for us in the last week. You've been on the road in Saskatchewan. Why don't you tell us about that? 
Every year the government of Saskatchewan puts on a uh, summary of all the activities that the, the government's been doing, that where the geologists have been, what new discoveries are on the province, and this year it was extremely well attended. Almost 800 people turned up to listen to the latest uh, information about the province. I understand there was quite a bit of attention directed toward Kanalaska and the fact that you've identified diamond targets in the Athabasca. There was a lot of discussion. Uh, a lot of people came and visited us. This was a new thing that we announced this year. The government put their geophysical task force on to looking at these targets as well as us uh, back in April and there was a presentation by the Saskatchewan government on what these kimberlite targets look like in the western Athabasca and there was also a, a very good presentation by the Geological Survey of Canada talking about the rocks that are in this area and how they're very old and very thick rock parts of the crust and so there's excellent potential for the discovery of diamonds so they were all very supportive of us. Of course, we're working with De Beers and we're, we're getting into the nitty-gritty of these targets. So it was just comforting to see uh, thoughts that came out from other people as well, and they definitely supported us. Diamonds are potentially a big story. I remember you had sent me an article reminding me of the great success story revolving around Stornoway Diamonds several years ago, and how it changed the face of that junior mining company. The upside with regard to Canalaska is most likely very positive, and I would even venture to say unknown, isn't it? Well, it's always been very positive. We're working in the area that uh, we've been very familiar with for the last 14 years. We've been looking for uranium in this area with our partners from Japan and from Korea, Mitsubishi Corporation from Japan and Korean Resources and Korean Electric for uh, Hanoi and SK from Korea. You know, as the uh, uranium market slowed down after Fukushima, we directed our staff to look at other targets. And it was fortuitous that the Canadian government had sponsored a new survey of the western part of the area where we generally work. And they flew some aircraft in the area looking for geological features that people could use for later on to compile the geological maps. And when we looked at that, we saw a whole lot of uh, strange features that looked to us like kimberlite pipes. These are basically small gas volcanoes that come from well over 100 miles under the earth and bring diamonds to the surface. So after we did about a year of evaluation of these, we assembled some ground and started looking who could help us with this, and that's when we bought De Beers. And so there's been a lot of activity since May on the ground. We're hoping the next steps here will get us drill programs on these early in the winter, but most likely It'll be March, April as the number of daylight hours uh, get longer. Well, that's certainly not too far away. You were telling me that the response not only from the Canadian government, but the investment community in general has been rather positive lately with regard to the resource sector. There has been a large amount of money made in the resource sector over the past year. A lot of people have been investing in base metals. We've seen a couple of companies with discoveries in the uranium space soar in terms of valuations from you know the 10 to $20 million value to five to six hundred million dollar value because of uranium discoveries. Copper companies are doing the same. At a really strange time when the uranium price is at a low, we see tremendous demand, not even more than two or three years out for uranium because of the number of nuclear reactors being built across Asia, but also through the Middle East, through Europe, and even in the US. The uranium price has been low and it's been frustrating in the financial markets, but 
We saw a lift earlier this year. I hope to see another lift early in the new year. Cameco Corporation have been producing a large amount of uranium and they've said they're going to withdraw some of their uh, production by doing an extended shutdown next summer when everyone can take the holidays. And, and I think the market will pay a lot of attention to that. We may even see the hedge fund looking to run ahead of the end users on that. And that's what we saw previously. We saw the price of uranium go from $7 to $140. So pre-Fukushima, it was around about $70, and we're trading down to $18 and change at the moment. So there's some wild fluctuations in the uranium price. The demand is predicted to be very high out there, and I think we're going to see a bunch of companies working to get some further financial players into the uranium market, which will certainly bring price back up to a normal level. So essentially, you see the market catching up with the demand at some point. The predictions are extremely strong for uh, prices to go back in those 40 to $60 price range, which is the price or the cost of production from a number of people. It's also the current price that people are selling uranium on a longer term basis. The prices that you see reported on the paper are the spot prices, and it's really hard to reconcile a spot price of 18 to $20 with a long-term price of 48 to even up to $60 when most of the uranium sold at that long-term price. Peter, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks again for joining me today on the program. Thanks very much, Alice. I've been speaking with Peter Dassler, President and CEO of Canalaska Uranium, trading in the U.S. as CVVUF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as CVV. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Look for Canalaska's logo on our homepage and click through to their website. And listen to the Ellis Martin Report in its entirety on iTunes and on your TuneIn Radio app. Who are the small companies with big opportunities? Find an assortment of potential investment opportunities. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Patrick Highsmith, the CEO of Pure Energy Minerals. Pure Energy. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol PE.V. And in the U.S. as PEMIF. Pure Energy Minerals is an emerging leader in the development of innovative, resource-efficient, mineral exploration and project development, notably with lithium. The company is focused on its 9,500-acre flagship lithium brine project located in Clayton Valley, Nevada. Lithium is used in a wide assortment of mobile devices, hybrid electric vehicles, and power storage. Pure Energy Minerals announced last year that the company had entered into an agreement with Tesla Motors for the potential supply of lithium hydroxide that they intend on producing from Clayton Valley not far from the Tesla Gigafactory. Patrick, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ellis. It's good to be here. As far as I'm concerned, Pure Energy is the big story in Nevada's Clay Valley. What have you been doing there in the last year that's really been revolutionary? Thank you, Ellis. We don't think of ourselves as a big story, believe it or not, because right next to us, of course, is the biggest story in the lithium business, Albemarle Corporation, who's mining a lot of lithium. It's the only lithium mine in North America. But what we think is a great story is that Pure Energy is the most advanced explorer and developer of new resources in Clayton Valley. And in fact, we have the only lithium brine resource in North America right there cozied up next to Albemarle. So it has been an exciting sort of 18 months. We've published our first inferred resource and reported that in accordance with Canada's securities laws, NI43101. And since then, we've signed a conditional off-tech agreement with Tesla late in 2015. And through 2016, we've continued to drill, engineer, and pump test that resource to look at the next steps. And that is, how feasible will it be to build a new generation of lithium mine there that doesn't involve those huge evaporation ponds we see now at Silver Peak and in Chile? 
Chile and Argentina, a much more sort of high-tech way of producing lithium. And I think that's what's getting most people excited about pure energy. Usually these big evaporation pods and their water sources have been a big drawback with regard to lithium or anything else that needs such a procedure to produce a resource. Exactly. The evaporation ponds are, in and of themselves, not particularly bad compared to many forms of mining with respect to the environment. These are natural salts, and there aren't a lot of toxic chemicals out there or anything. But they're huge eyesores, taking up thousands of acres in the case of Nevada, and I think over 10,000 acres in the case of Chile. So they are big features on the landscape. And of course, a lot of water is being pumped out of the ground, and the minerals harvested from it. And then that water gets evaporated away by Mother Nature. So one of the key aspects would be to conserve that water, albeit salty water, by the way. This isn't potable water. This is very mineralized water. But what we're trying to do with our development partners at Tenova Bateman Technologies is to apply a chemical process called solvent extraction, which literally pulls the lithium out of that brine and allows us to put the brine, when cleaned up and devoid of its lithium, back in the ground where it came from. So there's that big conservation of water. And of course, that's important in a desert state like Nevada. So that's sort of that first distinction of what we're doing differently. We will and have reported on the technology. Technology. We did a laboratory-scale test in 2015, explained it a little bit, showed excellent results. And then in 2016, we've just completed a larger mini-pilot-scale test of the technology, Ellis, that worked on 20 tons of brine, a much more larger-scale test. And those results will be being reported here to the market in the next couple of weeks. And there, we'll be able to give a lot more detail. But we certainly uh, have reported on it a little bit. And most people who are sort of mavens in the space have heard a little bit about it. But we'll be talking a lot more about it. You're not only an exploration company, which categorically you are, you're a tech company as well, especially with the inclusion of your Israeli partners. We do think that pure energy and even the new lithium industry is both a resource, the excitement of a new discovery kind of story, and a bit of a technology story. And of course, when your first customer is somebody like Tesla Motors, of course that puts you into a a zone of awareness, if you will, for people who follow a technology company. So I think you're absolutely right. The company has a a multi-path approach to reaching people and and perhaps to uh, generate interest from people, both those who follow resource stories and those who are interested in maybe values-based investing, green energy, things like that, and of course, applications of new technology that could really help the new technology billionaires like Elon Musk create that super future that they talk about, electric vehicles, grid storage, all those things like that, that really won't be possible unless we discover a lot more lithium and get it to market. One of the things, Patrick, that I would hear at the beginning of this year, 2016, is that lithium was a flavor. And by that, I mean a fad, a potential bubble from an investment point of view. For instance, it could be said, well, how many people do you know that drive electric cars, etc.? And energy prices are going down. There's an oil and natural gas glut. But the truth is that most, if not all, automakers will be moving over to electric cars in the not-too-distant future. That's right. We certainly, from an investment point of view, can appreciate those people who wonder about new things. They haven't heard much about lithium, for instance, but it's been around quite a while, and boy, has it seen some growth. I mean, the growth of lithium production to meet the demand for lithium batteries has been almost exponential. And then, of course, the growth of the lithium battery industry, which since my entrance into the lithium business in 2009 has grown from under a $10 billion a year industry globally to more than $25 billion and projected to surpass $40 billion by the time 
when we get to 2020. So it's growing really fast. And so, of course, there would be those investors who might look at that and say, well, this is a new thing or a fad. But I can tell you this, the people I know who drive electric vehicles has grown a lot in the last year or two years. So they are coming on. And I would say that all the major automotive companies are looking at it. And of course, we're real business guys. As you know, Ellis, we're out there. We found a mineral deposit. We're looking at developing it and finding customers for a future mine. And we're doing that because we see a real business here. And when these industries are actually growing to support the offtake of new lithium mines, we believe, this gets us pretty excited. And seeing it, lithium expand into these new technologies, of course, is one of the funnest part. And EVs are just a part of it. We're all carrying around portable electronics. Now, most of us have power tools in our home that use lithium batteries. And of course, grid storage batteries, home storage in the form of the Tesla Powerwall and other applications are pretty large format applications of lithium. So I would argue that it is a dynamic that people are interested in and and are following. And I think there's a lot of potential. In addition to Nevada being a very business-friendly oriented state, I mean, they went after Tesla after all. Do you think that Elon Musk positioned his gigafactory there because it's near a lithium resource such as yours? Nevada is home to the only lithium mine in North America and certainly the first. Silver Peak was the first lithium brine mine in the world before the big ones in Chile and Argentina came on. So I know that Tesla and others were certainly aware that there's a lithium endowment there and the potential perhaps to grow that. But boy, who knows? That was a complicated process, as you know, and it was all over the news and many states were vying for it. But I can say, working closely with the Nevada governor's office and and even regulators of late, it's a state that's open for business. It is, of course, number one in the world and number one in the U.S., Nevada is number one in the U.S. in gold production, well-known historically as the silver state, and maybe it will become the lithium state, as we sort of joke in our corporate presentation. can tell you that it's facilitative for new business. It was facilitative for Tesla to build the gigafactory there, and then that's one reason we're happy to work there. It has a predictable path to getting things done. The permitting process is predictable, understandable, as opposed to some countries around the world. Perhaps it's no coincidence that its geology was enriched in lithium that uh, resulted in the gigafactory getting built there. But who knows, those are higher than my pay grade, that sort of decision. Speaking of your pay grade, Patrick, the savvy investor knows that it's not enough to have a great resource and cash in the bank. The management team is everything and the secret sauce in building a successful company. Let's talk about Patrick Highsmith. You know, I'm a 27-year mining guy. I'm technically trained geological engineer and, and geochemist. And I've worked mostly for big mining companies for the first 15 years of my career, Rio Tinto in mine operations and BHP and, and exploration around the world. And then at Newmont, I sort of was brought in as a manager of business development globally uh, on the exploration side. And so that was really doing deals with juniors. And that's where I kind of got excited by the idea of putting deals together, working between large and small companies, making a new discovery move fast to its potential economics. After that sort of training in the majors, the junior world attracted me, and I'm one of the few kind of old gray hairs who's actually worked in lithium before. We founded a company in 2009 called Lithium One. I was the first CEO of that company, and we made a big discovery in Quebec in Hard Rock Lithium, and then we made a bigger, better discovery in Argentina, a big brine deposit called Sol de Vida. And uh, I led that team as we drilled it out and I took it through pre-feasibility and realized it was a heck of a good project brought in LG and the Korean government to help us through those risky early days of the project and to be off-takers of lithium. But, of course, working in Argentina, we had to watch the politics, and as the cycle there was going a direction we really didn't like, we did sell the company in 2012 to Galaxy Resources. But I've been around the junior world for a while, and I just find lithium, sort of gold and 
maybe copper or areas that host most of my interest. But lithium is kind of unique, and I have to say I'm sort of drawn to it. The chemistry of it I find interesting. The idea that you really have to form relationships with clients. And I've done that before with our relationship with LG and Hyundai and, and Corres in Korea. And I like that, having to sort of build a bridge between the resource and your customers. And that's what makes lithium a little different. It's more of an industrial mineral than gold. So since 2009, a lot of my focus has been in lithium. I guess that's a little unusual, but at least I'm having fun with it. Clearly, you had some foresight back in 2009. There weren't too many people looking at the lithium space, at least not in the investment community, correct? Indeed, we were early. I mean, if I look back when we founded Lithium One, as I said earlier, the lithium battery industry had a turnover annually of less than $10 billion. I would argue there weren't that many customers for our lithium in those days, and perhaps that's why it moved a little slow and we sold perhaps prematurely. But as I said, Argentina was also a challenge. So yeah, it was early, but and we've watched as this technology has grown into having real application, large-scale applications, such as electric vehicles. Let's face it, a, a smartphone only uses a few grams of lithium, whereas a full-size electric vehicle uses tens of kilograms. So that's really been the game-changer, and of course, the mining industry has responded to that. We've got lots of peers in the lithium industry now at varying degrees of development, but it's, uh, it's hard yards to develop any mineral deposit into a mine, and in lithium, that's no difference. So it management team is important, past experience is important, but of course what's also important is fundamentals of your deposits, the geology, the chemistry, the metallurgy, right through to whether you can sign up some clients for your lithium. And that's why you most likely decided to take the helm of this particular company. What attracted me about Pure Energy was as always, a team of people, you know, in this business, it's kind of a small industry and friends of mine were directors of the company and I got involved and, you know, maybe a year and a half ago and got to know the team a little bit. And I looked around and I said, you know, this deposit in Nevada has got paved highways and power lines coming right into it. It's a three and a half hour drive away from the Gigafactory. And frankly, while it might be relatively low grade compared to Argentina and Chile, it has about the best chemistry that we see of any of the brine deposits in the world, meaning it has low magnesium and calcium and other impediments that can increase the cost to extract lithium. So when I looked at those variables, being in a productive district right next to the only producer in North America, having favorable chemistry metallurgy that can lead to perhaps innovative processes, but also low-cost production potentially in the future, and the fact that they'd already signed up their first customer with that conditional supply agreement with Tesla, it looked like to me that we had a great chance of taking this project to the next level, and I found a capable team. We've got a good blend of very technical folks as well as business folks, business development inclined people. Of course, the, the macro is right, and you do have to look at the timing for these things. So when all those ingredients sort of get together, it was a great opportunity, and I took over as CEO in March and worked very closely with Robert Mintak, our chairman, the former CEO. He and I make a great team and still work closely together. So the people are always a big part of it, and the uh, unique sort of ingredients in this company seemed like a great fit for me at this time. Let's look ahead 12 to 24 months. Where do you see Pure Energy headed? And I'd like you to include in your answer your continuing search for projects in North and South America. Over the next 12 to say 24 months, Ellis, we see a pretty important time for the project. First, in Q1 of 2017, we expect to deliver the first preliminary economic assessment, that all-important PEA for these lithium brine projects. Now, there have only been four other brine projects that have achieved a PEA. One of those was my Sol de Vida project when we were at Lithium One. But that means that not many have been that far. And once that happens in the PEA, as you know, we get guidance on the potential economics of the project, the lead time 
into production, gets sort of codified and reported to the shareholders. And then, of course, we'll have recommendations and guidelines from there. And, of course, number one on that will be, is a bankable feasibility study deliverable? We believe it will be, and we'll believe we'll be progressing in that direction. And that will consume most of the following sort of 12 to 18 months. And as you know, that's very important. Getting out there with a feasibility study, nailing down the engineering details, the process design, where is this lithium going to go, who are your customers going to be, getting your permits in line. And so that's how we'll be spending our time. However, in parallel with that, we have a strong team, a diverse team, and have worked extensively in South America, many of us. And it just so happens that we do look at opportunities on a regular basis to add one project to our portfolio. These things are kind of opportunist, to be frank. We don't want to look and rush off into a deal that's too expensive or dilutive to shareholders, so we pay a lot of attention to that. And frankly, some of these assets, if you want to call them assets, are pretty high priced in this environment, as you can imagine. So we haven't done any other deals willy-nilly. We've acquired a little extra property immediately adjacent to us in Nevada where we're kind of working on a, an earn-in joint venture with Cypress Development Corporation in Nevada. We've just reported some good news from that project. But as for other opportunities, we are actively looking. It's in my blood, I have to say. I ran that exploration business development for Newmont. And I have to say, I, I like looking at new discoveries, new opportunities, and just seeing if there's a fit there. And if so, what it would look like in terms of deal structure and that sort of thing. So we are actively involved. Right now, we have a, a flagship project that's keeping us all very busy. But fortunately, my technical team is very strong and it allows me to spend a bit of time looking at other potential new projects as well. Give us an overview of Pure Energy's share structure, if you don't mind. Pure Energy is traded on the Toronto Venture Stock Exchange under the symbol PE. We have an active trade in the U.S. as an OTCQB company, and uh, that brings actually a lot of trading on the U.S. side of the border. And also our German co-listing is fairly active as well. It seems there's a lot of values-based, sort of green-conscious investors in Europe who follow us. The share structure is pretty simple. We have about 90 million shares outstanding. This company's been around for several years now and, and weathered the downturn in pretty good stead, actually. We're pretty well-funded. We have about $6 million in the bank. We're able to look out beyond this PEA well into the next year with that and keep an aggressive program underway. So we're fairly well funded. We got about 90 million shares out and we did raise a little bit of money early in the summer with Dundee Capital that kind of popped up the treasury a little bit and sets us up well, as I said, to advance through this PEA into next year's hopefully feasibility study. Patrick, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Thanks for having me. It's always fun to get on and talk with you about this stuff, Alice. I've been speaking with Patrick Highsmith, CEO of Pure Energy Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange is PE.V and in the U.S. is P-E-M-I-F. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. We asked it before you consider any possible investment choice. Do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me for a conversation now with James McDonald, president and CEO of Kootenay Silver. Kootenay Silver trades in the U.S. as K-O-O-Y-F and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol KTN. Kootenay Silver is a Canadian and Mexican-based silver exploration company actively engaged in the development of three major silver projects in Mexico, including the La Cigarra project in Chihuahua, Mexico, and the Promontorio and La Negra silver projects in Sonora, Mexico. The company has a leading growth profile highlighted by one of the largest silver asset bases in Mexico and a carried interest to commercial production with a world-leading mining partner. 
Kootenay currently has two drill programs in progress in Mexico and a combined 43-101 silver asset base of over 140 million ounces of contained silver. Forward-looking statements may be included going forward. Today, we join Mr. McDonald on site at the La Cigar Silver Project. Jim, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Alice. Happy to be here. You're at the La Cigar Silver Project in Chihuahua State, Mexico, with some exciting news for us. Feel free to share it with us, Jim. Yeah, I am. I'm right on site. Came down, we put news out here on the first 11 drill holes on our ram structure on the La Cigarra deposit. It's the very first time that structure's ever been drilled. We can trace it for uh, 3,400 meters, 3.4 kilometers, and we've tested only 400 meters of that. What we're showing here is that we've hit good mineralization in 9 out of 11 holes. We've got consistent silver mineralization in multiple zones uh, along that entire 400 meters strike length. So that bodes really well for adding resources there. We 400 meters of strike, we're already building something up. When you look at the big picture and the trend we're on, we're on the extension of a mineral trend that comes right out of the operating Santa Barbara and San Francisco del Oro mines immediately to our south. That trend goes under the valley cover to the south of us, and when it emerges on the other side of the valley, it comes right up into our ram and soledad structures and on into our deposit area. So we're working on the same mineral trend, same kind of structure, and they're mining down a 1,000 meter depth there. So this kind of start here, we're wide open on the ram structure along strike to hit silver mineralization consistently along 400 meters right out of the gate is very promising start and you know gives us a lot of confidence we're going to be adding ounces here and you know we've got potential for some real good high grade ounces or shoots forming along this trend we are potentially talking about ounces per ton though i'm looking at some of these drill highlights from the ram zone and they're very very strong you know we've got some great grades there to start Right at the gate, we're getting up to 200 grams per ton. You're talking in that sort of case, six ounce, seven ounce per ton range when you talk about ounces. Yeah, it's just the beginning. We're coming back. We're still currently drilling. We're moved over to a structure to the east. Uh, in the new year, we're going to come back to the ram structure. We're, and we're going to step out in wide space drill setups and just have a look at that whole trend and then come back and close in on the results we get from that. So the new year is going to be a lot of follow-up work. I think it's going to be very exciting for us. And not only that target, but the additional targets that remain to be drilled in the immediate area of the deposit itself. And then we're going to get onto the deposit in the new year and finish drilling it off, which has not been done yet. Nothing is certain, of course, but the future looks really bright with regard to the La Cigar Silver Project. The future looks um, <laughs> it looks really good. What we're dealing with here is a district-scale project. We're in an established district already. The Prell District, broader scope of the district, there's been some 2 billion ounces of silver discovered or produced. There's two producing mines in the district still, and those are the two mines that sit immediately to our south, south of our project. So we're basically extension of that system. And we've got multiple target areas on the property that haven't even been drilled yet. The deposit itself already has 52.5 million ounces of measured indicated silver and another 11.5 million ounces in the inferred category. It's open in both strike directions. It's open to depth. And then in the immediate surrounding area, there are eight undrilled targets. And we're just starting to have a look at those. And that's what these RAM results are all about. And for a first pass right out of the gate, that's very, very encouraging numbers that 
that we're getting. And we're just scratching the surface here. Well, Jim, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. We applaud all the good work that you're doing, and I'm sure that your shareholders may be very pleased as well. I've been speaking with James McDonald, the president and CEO of Kootenay Silver, trading as K-O-O-Y-F in the U.S. and K-T-N on the TSX Venture Exchange. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Ken Berry, the president and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining Corporation, trading in the U.S. as NHVCF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as NEE. Northern Vertex Mining Corporation is actively engaged in the development of its flagship Moss Mine Gold-Silver Project, located in the historic Oatman Mining District in Northwest Arizona. Over the past six years, the company has worked diligently to establish a substantial gold-silver resource and is now focused on advancing the project to commercial mine construction and future gold-silver production. Ken, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Ellis. You've completed Northern Vertex's Phase 1 pilot production of the Moss Mine Gold-Silver Project in Northern Arizona. Is that not correct? We have, in fact, completed the Phase 1 pilot production. Uh, It was very successful. It produced 4,000 ounces of gold and over 20,000 ounces of silver. And most importantly, what it did was it de-risked the project for the commercial phase, which is upcoming and expected to commence in the fall of 2017, just ahead of us. So we are essentially very close to commercial production. How much do you expect to pull out of the ground during the next few years? Well, our feasibility is calling for 42,000 ounces per year. So we'll commence construction according to our schedule. We'll be doing a build-out starting the next couple of weeks. That'll take place over the next six or seven months into June and July. And then we'll start loading the heap leach pad. And we expect to be extracting gold come September, October. And we're looking for a rate of 42,000 ounces per year. And, of course, the ramp-up will be a little less than that as we sort of move into full production. We're pretty excited. There's not too many projects in the U.S. that are this close to production. Let's talk about the cost of production. This is an open-pit project with outcroppings at surface. Does that mean there is visible gold? This should keep the cost of production essentially below $600 an ounce, right? We've got a cash cost that's in the $415 range, and then our all-in sustaining costs are about $668 per ounce. So that's exceptional. I've actually got the numbers right in front of me, and it's a cash cost of $409 an ounce and all-in sustaining cost of 668 So that's in the lower quartile for producing gold mines in North America. This is a fascinating part of the country, just off of Route 66 in Arizona. I haven't visited Oatman yet, but I expect to in the near future. It's exceptional location for a mining project. To give you an example, we're an hour and a half south of Las Vegas. You can fly into Las Vegas and be on the site within an hour and a half and be back in Las Vegas in the afternoon. But the area of Oatman where the mine's located is six miles outside of the town of Bullhead City or Laughlin. There's two sister cities. Laughlin is on the Nevada side. Bullhead City is on the Arizona side. And then we're also three and a half hours away from Phoenix. So we've got an international airport, which is just six and a half miles away from the site. So it's exceptional. 
exceptional. The employees and our staff can live at home and then travel daily to the site. It's a 20-minute drive from their homes, and we won't be carrying a lot of inventory, which is unusual for mining projects. Often mining projects are located in remote districts, which requires you to build a mining camp, which can be $10 million plus in expenses, or carry a tremendous amount of inventory, and that can also run you 10 to $15 million in inventory. So uh, this project, because of its location, doesn't have to incur these high expenses, and that's a reason why our capital expenditures to build this mine over the next seven months are estimated to be $33 million. So this is uh, very low for a mining project, and we're pretty excited about that. Essentially, you're taking it to a smelter and to market. It's turning into gold currency right away. We will have a, a Merrill Crow system or plant on site. So what that means is we'll be pouring Doré bars, gold and silver bars, on a weekly basis. And then we'll be sending it off to the smelter. It's pretty a streamlined process. We take the ore, we crush it, we put it on a heap leach pad, extract the solution, run it through the Merrill Crow system, and we'll be pouring the Doré bars, as I mentioned, on a weekly basis and then shipping them off to be processed further. It really doesn't get much better than that, does it, Ken? No, when you look at a project that's located in the United States, really this is an exceptional opportunity. I mean, we've reviewed the financial numbers and the data from our feasibility study and also the test mining, which has de-risked the project, and our internal rate of return is about 51%, and that's just unheard of for mining projects. You'd usually have a 15 20% return and you'd be happy, but we're up at around 51% after-tax return, and this is just exceptional. And you're providing jobs for the local community, and Arizona is a right-to-work state, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Well, that's true, Ellis. You've pointed out one of the favorable districts is northwest Arizona. When we ran the pilot plant and produced that 4,000 ounces of gold, 20,000 ounces of silver, we employed more than 100 people for that process, and we had a ribbon cutting at the beginning of the opening, and we had 350 individuals from the community, the state, and county level. It included the governor of Arizona, Governor Brewer at the time, that cut the ribbon for the project. So they're very pro-mining and pro-jobs in this area of Arizona. So we're happy to be located here and we've ingrained ourselves with the, the stakeholders of the region. Since it's so easy to get there relatively from anywhere, I expect Moss Mine to be somewhat of a tourist attraction, which I've never said to a CEO of a mining company before. You've brought up a good point. People can fly into Las Vegas from anywhere in the world and be on our site after they've landed within a couple hours. Starting in February of 2017 and just a few months away, they're going to actually have direct flights from Phoenix into Bullhead City. And your listeners are more than welcome to come down and give us a call and get an opportunity to see a real producing mine. But in addition to that, you drive just three, four miles from our site and you can visit the town of Oatman. And the town of Oatman is just a very historic center on Route 66. And... The mines in the neighboring area, the Oatman District, which we're included in, have produced over 2.5 million ounces of gold. And the town of Oatman is a tourist attraction in that they have wild burrows from the days that the prospectors and old-time miners were in the region and they were utilizing these burrows or mules and donkeys. And now they run wild in the area, and it's quite a tourist attraction. I believe they even shot how the West was won back in the... uh, former glory of the region. So it's a good area to come down and visit, and we welcome your listeners. 
What does the share structure of the company look like? Our share structure for a company that's raised over $53 million to develop this project, we're sitting with a, a healthy shares outstanding. Uh, I would consider it the lower end. There's 95 million shares outstanding. Our shareholder base is very strong. Management's got a significant interest as well as high net worth and private banking. And we also have a retail portion included in that as well. But this is a project that's U.S. made, and we're looking forward to attracting more interest from people and your listeners throughout the state. So more than happy, as you mentioned, if people want to put it on their itinerary to come down and visit and see the area of Oatman, we'd like to invite you down. Well, I intend on doing that in the very near future, Ken. And of course, we'll be chatting during the coming weeks and months, informing our audience of all upcoming news and events regarding Northern Vertex's Moss Mine Silver Gold Project in Arizona. Ken, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Ellis, thank you very much, and we look forward to updating your listeners as we start to commence the earthworks and the build-out of this project over the months to come. So thank you very much for inviting us on. I've been speaking with Ken Berry, the president and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining Corporation, trading in the U.S. as NHVCF and on the TSX Venture Exchange's NEE. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on TuneIn Radio or iTunes. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin for Cruise Capital Corp. Trading as BKTPF. Consider this, if you will. The dynamic for cobalt is very similar to what you've seen in lithium. The price for lithium has gone from $6,000 to a high of close to $25,000 in the last year and a half. That would be the equivalent of gold actually being at $6,000 in the next year. Cruise Capital saw an opportunity in cobalt six months ago, being one of the first companies in Nevada the day that Pure Energy announced its deal with Tesla. Cruise actually announced its own lithium deal. They were one of the first movers there and four months later lithium x came along when you become a lithium company you look at the dynamics of why lithium prices are moving the way they have primarily it's been the electric car industry that has been the driver for that exponential gain in lithium what the management of cruise did then was look at what were the main drivers within the battery space within those cars you had graphite which has already had more or less a bigger pop with many companies looking for graphite and not many finding it nickel is a much bigger industry and the company couldn't really get in at the early stages. And then cobalt. Looking at the cobalt dynamic, really there's only two or three companies in North America that are cobalt-specific companies of which they've spent a great deal of money on those projects and for the most part are still not at a point where they can really be economic. The cobalt numbers need to be higher to make those companies and the dynamics work correctly. When they were doing this, cobalt was $10. They need about $20 to be in a good comfort level to go into production. Cruise was looking at the dynamics of cobalt itself and there's a niche there. There were few within the sector. What Cruise did was hire a geological firm as they only wanted to find North American cobalt projects. They came back a month later with numerous cobalt showings. They garnered a database of close to 200 different cobalt projects of which they graded from 1 to 4. They came back with a small amount of number 1 categories and instead of getting 1 project, they captured 8 projects for the company right out of the gate. By having 
eight projects, all with the same highest-grade cobalt numbers in North America. It puts Cruz at a distinct advantage to all other cobalt companies that we expect will follow them, as they did in lithium in Nevada in the future. The cobalt dynamic is what really appealed to Cruise Capital, because looking at the car space, for example, you're going to see in North America a growing demand. What you're seeing in China is an exploding demand. In Europe, in countries such as the Netherlands and Sweden, a lot of countries want to ban cars on the road by 2025, 2030, 2040, or 2045 in Germany, for instance. What the company believes is going to happen in China is that you have a pollution issue there. You have massive infrastructure already in place by having 80 cities the size of Chicago already built up, and you have a government that when they decide to mandate that there will be no more gas cars, they don't roll it out like they do in the rest of the world. If they decide tomorrow that there are no more gas cars, there will be no more gas cars tomorrow. Right now, there's about 16,000 plug-in posts in China. By 2020, they want to have 4.9 million posts. When you look at that kind of exponential growth at what they want to do and what the dynamics of the battery industry could entail and the fact that there's been no new production of cobalt, the fact that 60% of your production of cobalt is in one African country, the DRC, which is mineral rich but politically really, really negative. You also have many outside factors such as what they consider blood cobalt. You've seen videos of seven-year-old kids coming out of holes in the ground in the Congo to pull cobalt out, of which the majority of that is being sold to the Chinese who really don't care too much about what they're doing as far as buying it. What you've seen is Samsung, Apple, Hitachi, LG producing every major battery for your phone, your laptops, your iPads, and your cars. These companies are having to explain where their cobalt is coming from. If you're tracing it back to the DRC, there could be some issues. If you, for example, have any kind of ethical mutual funds that own Apple and they trace any of their cobalt in their batteries back to children pulling it out of holes, that's going to be a negative. When you look at all the backstory as to why cobalt is going to go, we really think that you're going to see an exponential move. You can see it recently now with the price of cobalt, which is basically making year highs almost every day now. We expect that that's really going to move from here. Most, when they become fully aware of the cobalt story, are in agreement that cobalt is probably going to have a huge year in 2017. Just last week, Cruise Capital announced that it has significantly increased its land holdings on the past cobalt-producing Hector Cobalt Project in Ontario, Canada. The company has added 137 claims to its holdings, in fact, now comprising approximately 5,500 contiguous acres. The Hector Cobalt Prospect is one of four cobalt prospects in Ontario currently held by Cruise to go along with three in British Columbia and one in Idaho. The property was mined for cobalt and is a past producer of cobalt. This new expansion also covers multiple other cobalt showings based on Government of Ontario files. Cruise Capital Corp. looks forward to commencing operations on this prospect to evaluate and follow up on the historic data gathered. Cruise is focused on high-grade cobalt assets in North America, and they look forward to getting operations underway on multiple cobalt prospects. With eight current projects in the company, the company believes that Cruise is in a unique position at the forefront of what they feel will be an impending global cobalt boom. Cruise Capital believes that they are really at the forefront in the sector. When you look at everything, you know, when you put it all out there on the line, Cruise Capital strongly believes zinc and cobalt are going to be the two biggest upticks in 2017. And they believe the dynamics for cobalt are setting themselves up for an exponential move. Consider looking at Cruise Capital Corporation as a potential investment opportunity. Cruise Capital trades in the U.S. as BKTPF. That's BKTPF. Cruise Capital Corp. is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Smart Report. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website 
ellismartinreport.com. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Katherine Hickson, a director of Dejin Resources Corporation, trading in the U.S. as DJIFF. Dejin Resources Corporation is an energy metals company with brine-based lithium exploration projects strategically located in both South and North America. In August of this year, Dejin's wholly owned Argentinian subsidiary, Dejin Resources South America, signed a binding memorandum of understanding with Lithium S Corporation, whereby Lithium S will be granted an option to earn a 51% interest in Dejin's lithium properties in Argentina. Dr. Hickson is a globally recognized geoscience expert with more than 30 years experience. Catherine, welcome to the program. What is so interesting? about lithium right now that our audience should really pay special attention to? Well, lithium is one of those amazing elements that over the years we found more and more uses for. In particular, it is used for energy storage batteries. And that's what you're hearing all the hype about these days is more and more battery usage for electric vehicles, for your laptops. But I think what is really important about lithium batteries are things like power walls to help us with our renewable energy. What does that mean, power walls? There has been a big push for homegrown energy And what we're talking about is rooftop solar, small wind plants, these kinds of things. But of course, with wind and solar, the only time that you get electricity is when the wind is blowing or the sun is shining. What you need is a way to store that for times when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing. And those are now power walls. Essentially, they're built into your home, lithium batteries, ways to store that energy so that you use it when it's dark out or the wind isn't blowing. And this is something I didn't know about before this interview, and potentially that's going to be a a new industry that will cover the entire country with all the emphasis on solar energy and wind power these days. Yes, indeed, you have to store it somewhere. And it really is because the renewables like wind and solar are just, they're not 24-7. So you need to smooth out that spectrum as we move into more and more of our power being supplied by renewable energy. And that is from a homeowner right up to a utility. There needs to be a way to store power. And lithium batteries have proven to be very safe way of storing large amounts of power. We briefly spoke about the automotive industry, and that's always been the driver for, let's say, publicly traded lithium companies. When they tell their story, they wrap it around Tesla, let's say, which is active in Nevada, as are you. You're in the same state and probably not too far away. And we would hate for anybody's business to revolve around one particular car maker. But as a matter of fact, everybody's getting involved in it at some point, correct? That's absolutely correct. All of the major car makers are now working on, either they already have existing either hybrids or fully electrical, but everybody is getting out there. And I think what is even more important is not just the the passenger vehicle. What we're seeing now is buses and trucks. So many manufacturers are now moving into electrical vehicles. Bus, you know, you know their size, they have significant capacity. They need significant capacity so that we have big batteries. So this is another thing that is driving the lithium market. Yes, what's glitzy, what people are seeing in terms of ads are the major car makers creating new kinds of vehicles. They're, you know, sexy, people like them. But in fact, the 
lithium usage is going to be very significant for buses and trucks. And again, that's another aspect that's driving the market, not just the passenger vehicle. What is special about your company compared to others? I think what Dejan, what we have, and what other companies like us, is we have to fill that capacity gap. Right now, there is a projected shortage. So we've talked about electric vehicles, we've talked about power walls, more and more lithium batteries, increasing capacity of those batteries. And with that increasing capacity, obviously we need more lithium. Lithium is not a rare metal, and I think people need to understand that. It's actually very common in our environment, but what is uncommon is places where it can be extracted in large quantities that will meet this growing demand and at really economic levels. Catherine, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us today on the program. Thank you so much for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Katherine Hickson, a director with Dejan Resources Corporation, trading in the U.S. as DJIFF. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin for Cobalt Tech Mining Incorporated, trading as NRT on the TSX Venture Exchange. Cobalt Tech is very unique in that it has agreed to acquire all of the assets and technology to become North America's first vertically integrated cobalt processing company with the capacity to take mineralized ore to produce high-tech metals. It is the company's goal to continue exploration, mine its assets, bring them into production and to market an all-inclusive operation, crushing, milling, refining, smelting, and marketing all in one. The company basically having its own infrastructure. What is the importance of cobalt? Why is its use crucial as we continue to move forward in a technologically advanced industrial society? Cobalt is an essential component for cathodes in NCA and NMC type batteries or lithium ion batteries. You can't really make these cobalt cathodes without it. Cobalt Tech President and CEO Antoine Faunier explains. Cobalt actually enters into the cathodes. In a battery you have cathodes and, uh, and anodes and the current uh, travels from one to the other. And uh, the cobalt actually is used to making the cathodes. So it's a very essential component of uh, lithium batteries. A supply versus demand crunch is imminent, with 61% of mined cobalt retrieved from the politically unstable Democratic Republic of Congo, where, according to the Washington Post, children are actually using their hands to dig it out of the ground. Much of that same cobalt is headed to China, where that country refines 43% of the world's cobalt. The cobalt is then used in the millions and millions of phones, computers, and other electronic devices that the country produces for much of the globe, in alliance with companies such as Apple and Samsung, believe it or not. That will become potentially increasingly problematic should the U.S. enter a trade war with China, a country which is already attempting to control the world's mineral resources. Tesla is looking to source new raw materials strictly from North America. Other car makers will follow suit, especially as manufacturers are encouraged to keep production within the United States as per the consensus of the new incoming administration. Much of what we consume may be in fact produced in either the U.S. or Canada. Cobalt is also widely used in magnets and wear-resistant high-strength alloys. It has long been used as a pigment for glass, ceramics, inks, and paints. The town of Cobalt, Ontario, Canada is home to Cobalt Tech's Duncan Kerr project, with an estimated 1.3 million tons of mineralized stockpiles also housing a 100-ton-per-day mill. The mill is fully permitted. And did I not mention that the town is named Cobalt? 
Needless to say, Ontario is one of the most mining-friendly jurisdictions in the world. I asked Mr. Founier what he believed the stockpiles on site consisted of. We have one concentrated pile, and this pile is running very high-grade silver and cobalt. It's running 760 grams per ton silver and 0.95% cobalt, whereas the the waste piles and the the stockpiles that we've seen on surface so far, we're getting between 5 and 10 ounces to the ton silver and uh, probably around uh, half a percent cobalt. So that's about 11 pounds of cobalt to the ton. Cobalt Ontario is a unique area in the world because the cobalt is tied to silver, which is abundant in the area. It's a very unique geological environment, and it makes it much more easy to actually estimate a resource on this kind of material and bring it into production because it's not as complicated as bringing a massive sulfide deposit in production. You need a lot less tons, and you can process the material directly. So it's a very economical process. Cobalt Ontario is home to the first mineral discovery in northeastern Ontario that would open the way for the prolific Timmins and Kirkland Lake mining camps. Historically, 484.6 million ounces of silver have been produced in Cobalt, Ontario. Global expansion in production of the lithium-ion battery makes the acquisition of the Duncan Kerr project a significant value-add for Cobaltech Mining. The company has approximately 57 million shares outstanding and trades near 19 cents today. It may be a very nice investment opportunity in the cobalt space. That's not for me to say. That's your decision. Invest at your own risk. For more information on Cobaltech Mining, visit our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Cobaltech Mining trades as NRT.V on the TSX Venture Exchange and is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Stay with the Opportunity Radio Network for continued reporting on this expanding and growing resource story in the cobalt space. And remember to always do your own research when considering an investment opportunity. I'm Ellis Martin. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 